Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Okay, so I am joined today by Indira Grace. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so we're going to have a conversation today, and I hope it goes really well. We'll see. So I first met her because she was the volunteer coordinator at the Rime Buddhist Center where I went mm-hmm. at the time. I don't go there anymore, but she, um, she actually left that position. And I don't know any details about that. I'm not really going to ask, except to say that to me, that was scandalous that somebody quit their position there because I was very naive at the time. And later I learned that that was a very normal and common thing that happened, mm-hmm. happens regularly at places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, did, My- you, did you feel like it was scandalous at the time? I did not. <laughs> Actually, I did not. Um, and the reason that I quit is because I, I moved out of the area. I moved from the Kansas City area to the Leavenworth area for a while. And um, and so it just didn't it didn't fit into my schedule to try to get in there on Sundays. Um, but I, I've always been a little bit of a traveler in, in things that I do when I when I commit to something, I commit for a very short period of time because I know that things are always going to change. I've probably lived in, I don't know, probably 30 different places. Um, I, I just, I, a little bit of a, of a nomad, if you will. And so I'll commit to something for a little bit until um, I've given what I can give until I've gotten what I can get. And then I just move on to the next thing. So I do that quite, quite a bit in my life. You've lived 30 places. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> terrifying to me, but okay. yeah, I, um, my roots are more to myself than to like any one place. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we're going to talk about, talk about your name. I think, mm-hmm. okay. did you legally change your name? I have not. Um, no, I have a, I have a legal name that okay. was given to me at birth. Um, but it was about 10 years ago. Um, and what had happened is I had discovered that my name, and I, and I don't know why I never realized it, but I had discovered probably 10 years before that, that my name was a um, feminine version of my father's name. And I um, was, I had grown up in a pretty uh, violent, uh, volatile household in the, in the early years, um, like born into it. And then it lasted for about four or five years. Um, and um, I had been studying under uh, Amma Bhagavan out of um, out of India, the part of the oneness um, oneness community, and in some of the studies that I had been doing and studying under these gurus, um, I, I was ready to kind of dissolve all connection to my earthly father, basically, um, whose name just happened to be Dean, and and Diana is the the um, feminine version of that. And so I went to Amma Bhagavan and I said, um, can I, can I, can I be reborn? You know, can I, can I shed all of that and, and come in and truly be who I meant to be? And they said, absolutely. And, um, and then Bhagavan, who's the, the male counterpart of my guru said, um, and I will give you a new name. 
Um, and so he get, he gifted me with Indira grace and Indira is the other name for Lakshmi. Um, and Lakshmi of course is the goddess of abundance, but she's also the goddess of beauty. And when he gave me that name, I was like, Whoa, those are really big shoes to fill. <laughs> I don't know. Can I, can I take it back? <laughs> and then, um, because my middle name as an earthly name was after one grandmother, he gave me grace after the other. And wow. he didn't even know that it was like, like I never told him he knew because, they know, you know, they're, they're mm -hmm. absolutely connected to source. And um, he said, I'm naming you Grace after, after your other grandmother. So, so I still kept the earthly connection with also the spiritual connect. So, okay. yeah, okay. but it's not legal, but I do go by it. Um, and people are really gracious about honoring the name that you prefer to go by. And, um, and so I hardly even get called to the other name anymore, except by, by family. Okay. Um, I heard a while ago mm -hmm. that Facebook was going to come down on people mm -hmm. that didn't use their birth name. Yeah. But you're okay. You so use, far I'm you okay. Your, your, do you call it your spiritual name? Uh, yeah, I really okay. do. And unless Mark Zuckerberg is listening to this, I may, <laughs> I may be okay still. <laughs> I don't know how they catch people, but I heard they do. Right. So. Well, one of my friends got caught. Mm, okay. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know like, spiritual names are, uh, common in a lot of traditions, I guess. Mm -hmm. I know. I know one person, a Zen teacher in Nebraska. His mm -hmm. name's Dosho Port, and mm -hmm. his original name was Mike Port. And mm -hmm. when he got divorced, he legally got his name changed, so right. his so his Buddhist name would be his, his official name. official yeah. name on his driver's license. Right. I don't want to say real name, but <laughs> official name, the legal name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so okay. So, okay. So Lakshmi, that is a Hindu goddess, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Is okay, and I don't know if oneness is Hindu or not, but I just want to ask: Do you consider yourself a Hindu and a Buddhist? I or neither. Um, both and then some. So, um, I I really subscribe to to Gandhi's teachings, where I'm I'm everything. Um, so I have um, sat with the Sikhs in their temple, and I have worshipped with them. I have gone to mosques and worshipped with the Muslims. Um, I am, uh, currently, um, in unity and I'm in school to become a unity. Well, I'm actually getting my, um, my prerequisites out of the way. I'm hoping to go into ministerial school. Um, I don't believe that again, that it's that nomadic. I think that nomadic spirit that I have within myself, um, I believe that all paths lead to the same God. And so why care the same source or the same, the same truth, which ultimately is love and compassion, and so I don't, I'm definitely um, more of a, why not just practice them all, you know, if they all speak truth to me. And um, I go back to that, that scene in, in one of the early episodes of Friends where, you know, Ross is talking about his wife and what if, you know, what if she was that one person for me and, and, you know, and Joey's going one, you know, life is, is a Baskin Robbins and it's 31 flavors. And I have always been more of a Joey in that, you know, life is a 31 flavors and it's, there's so much beauty in, in the Sikh faith. And there's so much beauty in the, in the Buddhist tradition. And there's so much beauty in, um, in the Muslim faith and, and, um, and there's a lot of beauty in, in some of the, some of the Christian traditions as well. And so I'm, I'm just not going to settle for just one and say, that's what I am. I can practice them all. And, you know, Buddhism, you know, to, to quote, uh, I believe it was Thich Nhat Hanh had said, um, it was, it's really just meant to make you a better, whatever you are, you know? And so, 
whatever I am, which is really just, just spirit. It just makes me a better, whatever I am. It just reminds me to be compassionate. You know, so like today I took, you know, doing the Bodhisattva challenge, the 108 day Bodhisattva challenge that the Rime is, is uh, throwing down the gauntlet for. And, and it remind, and of course this one is about environmentalism and it's about reminding us that we are interconnected with the earth and we're interconnected with each other and we're interconnected with sentient beings. And um, who doesn't need that reminder? You know, because so often I feel very independent. I feel very, I, I isolate sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm very much an introvert and I love to isolate and I need that reminder to come out and to be interdependent with the other sentient beings in this world. Okay. So um, I have a follow-up question. This yeah. is going to be a weird question. <laughs> you're not going to expect this, but okay. just, I was going to ask if you're extroverted. And the yeah. reason I was going to ask that is mm -hmm. because you said, well, I go pray in the Sikh temple and mm -hmm. I go visit the Remay Center and I do this <laughs> challenge and I go here and I go here. And then I think you're meeting people all the time. <laughs> and that sounds exhausting to me. So um, I wonder, and then I, are you, then I say I am and then you said yeah. the opposite of what yeah. I expected. So um, I, I is that an exception to your introversion or that's really interesting that you, um, so when I go to those places, I usually just find one or two person, one or two people to meet. I don't go up and meet like every single person there. I will find that one, those one or two, and I usually go ahead of time and I'll meet like the leaders of the temple. And of course in the Sikh faith, you're really with the women, you know? And so the women, you may not understand anything that they say because most of them is particularly, in the Gurdwara that we have in, um, there's one in, in, uh, in Shawnee, Kansas. And I have been there with them and many of them don't speak English. And so there's really not a lot of speaking. And for me, my faith is, is completely internal. So while I am, while I'm praying with them or I'm worshiping with them, it's really very much about me and my connection with source in that time and what I'm going through, what I'm experiencing. And I am surrounded by, by these very kind, gentle, loving, friendly women. Um, but they, they hardly speak to me. So I hardly have to speak back to them because most of them don't speak English. They just smile and hand me plates of food, which is very, very kind. Um, but yeah, so I don't have to meet a lot of people okay. um, when I do it. Um, and a lot of times I will just simply go in and 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 you know sit in the back. And, and it's all about my my path, my personal path my personal travels and my connection with spirit and what I get from what I hear. So I'm still get to be very much an introvert, even though I go to all these different places and worship. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good answer. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to ask you to talk about prison now. Yes. You have spent time. If I understand correctly, you have taught spiritual things in prison as mm -hmm. well as teaching, um, that like I need my high school diploma. I don't know right. what you call that. GED. Yeah. Teaching GED classes yeah. in prison. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to ask, how did you get into that? And what yeah. did you like about it? Okay. So um, interestingly enough, when I was 12 years old, somebody asked me what I want to do when I grew up. And I said, I want to teach in prison. And they're like, oh, silly little girl. You don't know what you're saying. You know, and I'm like digging my heels in. Yes, I do. And I had always known that I needed to work in prison as a teacher. And the reason was is because I felt that they were very uh, misunderstood. I felt that, that a lot of the guys that are inside um, were very misunderstood. 
So my very first time that I got to teach um, in prison, and I waited until I felt like I was pretty stable emotionally, because as I said earlier, kind of a volatile upbringing. And so I had some some issues, uh, some personal issues that I had to work through in therapy. So I was about, oh gosh, probably 38 or 40 when I finally got my first job in prison. And, um, and what it was was uh, teaching an environmental water technology at the juvenile facility in Kansas. And um, my job was to go in and to meet with the unit teams, which are like the, the a unit team in prison is um, the head of a particular unit and they have a certain number of inmates under their, under their um, care and they have to make sure that their daily needs are met. At the juvenile facility, you only have something like 15 or 18 kids under your um, under your care. At the adult facility, I learned you can have up to like 115. <laughs> um, so it's it's very because juveniles require a lot more attention than mm-hmm. adults, and um, because there's just so many more laws protecting juveniles than there are adults. And so I taught in environmental water technology, and I did that for about a year and a half. Um, I was the academic coordinator. Um, I went in and I. Uh, talk to the boys um, because it was mostly, it was, it was only geared toward the males. We did have a female unit there and I was allowed to teach some college classes to some of the girls, but not environmental water technology. It was like sociology and things like that. Um, But they got college credit from Fort Scott community college. So that was my first experience. Did that for about 18 months and the grant was going to be ending soon. So I transferred, I went and got a job at an adult facility in Kansas and I became a unit team there. And that's where I learned um, that you're going to have a lot more than like 15 to 18 people under your care. So um, I had, I think in my first unit, I had something like 75 or 80 guys. Um, and my job was to, to see to their, to their everyday needs. So um, lawyer calls, uh, making sure that that the, the pay that they got was accurate, um, breaking bad news to them, like uh, like a family member had passed away, uh, making sure that they were safe. Um, you know, guys would come in with black eyes or broken teeth, and I had to offer them protective custody because it appeared that they had been assaulted or, you know, something like that. And making sure that they got their mail and their legal mail and all of their, you know, all of their care and everything. Um, and then, uh, and I did that for, a couple of years. And then um, I had to leave the prison for a while. I had some situations come up and I had to leave. And um, and then I went back and I taught yoga for six months as a volunteer and totally love it. So that's where I got to teach the spiritual stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, totally love that. Um, and then I uh, got a job where I couldn't do that anymore. And so then, interestingly enough, it all kind of came back full circle and I got to go in and I taught GED for about a year. Um, and I loved it. I, and what I loved about it was I loved watching them change. I loved watching them change before my very eyes. And, um, and I loved getting to be that example of compassion every single day that helped them to see what they were going through. So I'm going to give you an example. I had a, had a guy who, um, who, uh, was, I assigned him an assignment where he had to write an essay and then give it to a neighbor and like trade it with a neighbor. And the neighbor was then supposed to, to, to read it and, and uh, grade it. 
And in the process, the guy started to have a meltdown. Like he, and he, the next thing you know, he is screaming at me in the middle of my class. I cannot do this. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's fair that you're on the very first day, you're having me write an essay and have somebody do this. And, and I immediately listened to what was in between the lines, you know, what was in between his words. And so I pulled a chair up and I sat right across from him, just like you and I are sitting. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, what I think I hear you saying is, is you're worried that somebody is going to think you are stupid because you've written something and, and you don't think that it's going to be worth anything. And he actually began to cry oh, and, goodness. and tears are streaming down his face. And he goes, yeah. And I said, so I'm going to, we're going to do something different. I want you to pick one person in this room that you trust. And it can even be me if you want and that's going to be the person who critiques your essay. And he was like, you would do that? And I was like, did I just offer it? <laughs> and he goes, well, yeah, you would do that? And I said, of course I would. And he said, well, I choose this guy. And it was the guy sitting to his right. And I said, and you trust him not to call you dumb or stupid or anything? He was like, I do. And I said, okay, is the problem solved? And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, are you ready? And he's like, yeah. And so I just got up and I walked away. And he came back to me and he goes, I really don't know how to take you. He said, I don't, I didn't realize I could just ask you for what I needed. I thought I had to, to make a scene about it. Mm -hmm. And I said, so that must've been something that happened in your home is where you had to make a scene to get what you needed. And he's like, it was. And so then the next time he came to me, he kind of started to throw that fit thing again. And then he stopped and he goes, what I really need is a history book. Do you have a history book? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes. And I went over and I got the history book and I handed it to him and he said, thank you. And he goes, I'm learning. I'm just learning. And so it, it just like, that's one of my most favorite stories of working in, in the facility, watching them when you lead by example, how quickly they would pick up and make the change for themselves. And, and it turns out that he didn't have to create chaos at all to get his needs met, but for what, 36 years he had to. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's I think I suppose we could think of inmates as people that society is kind of thrown away. So showing them any compassion is really meaningful. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And and um, it's interesting because a lot of the people who work in prison um, and I and I've been trying to figure out how I wanted to say this. A lot of people who work in prison as soon as you go in is when you, and you go through training, they will tell you these are inmates that cannot be trusted. They're the dregs of society. However, it's not your job to punish them yet. So many, you know, cause their punishment is getting into prison yet. So many of them, the, the, they are, they're rude and disrespectful. And that's not to say that all the people that work in prison are, but I have watched um, unit teams and officers both just look at somebody and say, you know, call them names and, you know, you're an inmate and you can't be trusted. And, you know, to, to, to these guys. And I'm like, and 95% of them are getting out. 95% of these guys who are inside are going to be our neighbors and to immediately address them as inmate. And you cannot be trusted. This does nothing for letting these guys out. And, and I will be the first one to say, and I firmly believe this, that if any person changes their behavior in in prison it is because they themselves pulled themselves up from from the rock bottom and they wanted to make the change and they had to move through 
officers and unit teams and all these people who are trying to truly keep them down. And, and they were able to, to build themselves up through through some pretty major gauntlets. Not to say that everybody was bad. I one captain in particular I absolutely admired because she would um, she would go out on a limb for guys. I can't tell you how many times she came to my office and said, this guy, this guy's trying to change his life. Will you give him a chance? Um, but I can also give you one unit team manager that um, just never said a nice thing to a single person who walked into his office ever. So it's, you know, it, it was, it was a hard thing to watch. It was a, um, and ultimately I, I had to leave because um, my compassion was too bright for that environment. And, uh, and I just butted heads with a lot of people that were there because I, I didn't tolerate the, the systemic racism that still occurred in there. Um, I didn't tolerate the, the, the systemic abuse. Um, I always found it interesting. Um, they would say, oh, you can't trust that person. He's an inmate. Yet they had all of these other inmates who were lined up to be uh, confidential informants within the prison. So you can trust those inmates, but you can't trust <laughs> these inmates. You know, it was, and, and, and the place thrives on chaos. It absolutely, that's, that's how they, um, that's how they keep prisons going is to continue the chaos within, within the walls. What would you say to someone who um, has the idea in their head that working in a prison is very scary? Oh, I felt safer on prison streets than I, felt, <laughs> than I feel on the regular street because there's cameras everywhere. There's officers okay. everywhere. And um, for the most part, if you treat those inmates with respect, they will most of the time have your back. Um, and I will give you a, just a real quick example. I was the witness to a, a physical assault. Um, and um, so I had, you know, write up the paperwork and stuff like that. There was a guy got a lock and a sock to the head. And, um, and uh, an inmate came to my class and he was a shot caller for, I want to say he was a shot caller for the Bloods. Um, and he said, um, you need to know that that will never happen on this floor again. There's no reason why a civilian should ever have to see that. And then what I learned after that day was um, that all of the heads of the gangs got together and said, no more assaults where civilians are. Mm -hmm. If you're going to assault each other, it's going to be where the officers are. So in the yard, in the cell houses, on the street, in the, in the chow hall, but never where civilians are. And that was because that they had our, they had our backs because we, we respected them. We came in, we offered them services that these others wouldn't. And, and so they respected that. So I felt safer inside the prison walls than I feel than I do even going to hy V. you know? So I, I loved it. I assume all the prisoners agree that they don't want you to stop coming. So they only see guards every day. Right. Right. So exactly. And so they, and sense. they got things, you know, I mean, we, you know, in the, in the, just in the year that I was there, something like 55 GEDs, you know, was amazing. Okay. Yeah. So, and this kind of work you don't do anymore. No, and I don't. <laughs> now, um, you have spent time doing various different things, but is mm -hmm. now your focus is going to school to be a unity minister? Is that yeah. Correct? So I work in the prayer room at Silent Unity and that's all I can say about that work. Um, uh, but I, I'm taking my SEE classes, which are spiritual enrichment and education courses. 
and you have to take 18 of them to become a unity minister. And I worked at Silent Unity before I went into the prisons. Um, I worked there for a year and I was not mature enough at the time. I took a lot of stuff on. Um, and, but I knew then that I wanted to go into the ministry. Um, and I love unity because it's a lot like Buddhism in that it's not fundamentally Christian and it's only supposed to make you a better whatever you are. Um, and it's the, and the point of it is to help you connect or align to source, whatever that is um, for you. And so that's one of the things. And a lot of unity ministers are also like Buddhist monks or nuns. Um, a lot of them go into Native American stuff. Um, they all, a lot of them don't stay within the Christian aspects and a lot of them don't get churches. A lot of them do outreach. So we just lost, um, she was a dear, dear friend of mine that I had worked with, uh, at silent unity before her name was Lonnie Vanderslice. Um, and she just, uh, made her transition at one fifteen Saturday morning. So, um, but she had a whole unity, um, outreach that involved working with women who are recovering addicts and or out of prisons. And it's through um, sewing labs, teaching them how to sew and, and giving them jobs and um, with the company that she and her, her partner had, um, had started. And so uh, a lot of them go out and do other things aside from just having churches and a lot of unity also does a lot of things that the Buddhists do, which is reaching out to those people in society that many people don't want to work with. They work with the recovering addicts. They work with the the people who've been released from prison. They work with the homeless. Um, and so that's one of the things that really drew me to unity. I was going to ask you to tell the listeners what unity is, but I feel like you already did that. <laughs> uh, it's headquarters here, headquarters yeah. here in Kansas City. In Kansas so I don't know City, if these yeah. are everywhere, but I know I see them and it looks like, it looks like any other church, but um, it's very, it's very different. really not. Yeah. And everybody I've met that is in that area is super nice and really mm -hmm. positive and friendly. So, yeah. so it was started, um, unity was started way back in the 1800s with Charles and Myrtle Fillmore. And the way that it came about is Myrtle at an early age was diagnosed with tuberculosis and she began going to what they called new thought teachings. And what she had discovered was that, um, that we have absolute control and power over our bodies to, to, uh, to an extent. Um, and so she started speaking to her body and she completely healed herself of tuberculosis, which was just unheard of back then. And so, um, Charles was, was, she and Charles were fairly well off. He was a realtor and a couple of other things and they had quite a bit of money. And so they had a church downtown at like ninth and Tracy. And then, um, which was really, they never wanted to have ministers within unity. They just wanted it to be groups of people who got together and, and talked about what source looked like and how you align with source and, and source just another word for like God, but not the big Santa in the sky, you know, who, casts down favors and all that stuff. And, um, but anyway, they ended up purchasing like, I don't know, something like 10,000 acres out at Unity Village. We have our own zip code. We have our own water source. We have a power supply. We have our own bookstore. We have our own golf course. We even have like, which is really cool, um, our own underground tunnel system <laughs> <laughs> that connects a lot of the, the buildings to each other. And, um, and so they call it new thought. And um, a lot of the, the people back then, they referred to each other as truth students. 
And it was just a way to empower oneself. Um, I, I often feel like traditional Christianity, it disempowers you. Um, they will say, you know, God has a plan for you. So then that what that does is that tells somebody, oh, then I don't, I don't get a say in my life. You know, if God has a plan for me, then I have to do God's plan. And it makes us childlike. In fact, they even say, you know, you are a child of God. And so it makes you very childlike and it takes away your power. What unity says is, no, you have, you have so much power. Yes, there's still kind of this plan, but you also have choices in that. And you get some say in a lot of this. And one of your major choices is how you approach it with your attitude. So, of course, they have the denials and affirmations. Affirmations have been very popular through um, the law of attraction. What they failed to teach was the denial aspect. And there's a really great book by Linda Martellowitzit called How to Pray Without Talking to God. And it goes into the denial aspect. So when people are trying to do affirmations and they don't work because they're standing in front of a mirror and they're trying to affirm, 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 and yet their mind is screaming, you know, let's say they're trying to affirm, I am skinny and healthy. And their mind is screaming, you are a fat slob, you know, and they don't, they don't address that denial. Right. And so Linda teaches you how to do that in this book. And, um, and that's just one of the many teachings that they do, but they teach you, you know, what is yours to do in partnership with source? You are a co-creator. You haven't been created and you're not a puppet of this big Santa in the sky. You are a co-creator. And sometimes you co-create with your attitude. So I'll give you an example. I, um, I was expecting a phone call the other night. And I, and I was in kind of in this bad mood and I'm like, oh, my phone's probably going to screw up and I'm probably not going to get it. And guess what? My phone screwed up. I didn't get the call. And I was like, dang, I just did that to myself. Like I knew it, you know, immediately, as soon as it registered the call 25 minutes later, it's like, dang it, you know? And so we co-create our experiences and we do that through, through our attitude, through our, um, our responses. And so what unity has taught me really to do is to truly step into my power and to say, I, I can, and I am creating this reality for myself. Have you been involved in this for a long time? My first husband. So again, the nomad, um, and I've had three husbands. Um, so even, <laughs> even relationships are hard for me <laughs> settle down into. Um, my first husband got me involved in 1998. And so, yeah, I've been doing it for over 30 years, 30, 20 years, 20 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And you were just, okay. And you were just doing this oneness thing and this Buddhism thing. Cause you do a lot of things. Cause I do a lot of things. Well, okay. and I have a lot of passion for life and I have a lot of passion for truth. And, um, and I always want to move closer and closer. And this has been since I was three. I ran away from home at three because my parents refused to take me to church on Easter because I knew Easter was some kind of sacred service and everybody decided to sleep and instead of take me, you know, and I didn't know what it was about. I knew it wasn't about the Easter bunny. I knew it was about Jesus and there was something really sacred about it. And my family wouldn't get out of bed. So I packed a bag and I was, you know, and I had made it like four miles down the road with my suitcase on Easter morning before the police finally found me and my, all my family was still asleep. And so I've, I've always had this passion for truth since I was four. So, and oneness took me closer. Um, unity has taken me closer. Buddhism has taken me closer. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's that nomadic, that nomadic life for sure. Okay. Um, so I just want to ask, and maybe this will be really hard to answer. Mm -hmm. What do you think these communities could do better? 
I don't know that they could do anything better because we're all just human and we're all just trying to to manage it. Um, there's a lot of disorganization with all, within all the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so organization would be good. But yet at the same time, if I truly embrace um, my Buddhist teachings and my unity teachings, nothing is permanent. Everything is impermanent. And so the sometimes the disorganization creates the chaos that creates the de-evolution of something and ultimately you know, it disappears. So like oneness was really big in Kansas city, um, about 10 years ago. And, um, with, you know, like some of our leaders moving away and some of our leaders moving into other things. Um, and a couple of our leaders, you know, like found other, other teachers or gurus to study under, we just kind of (laughs) fizzled, we just kind of fizzled. And so, um, organization, but, is it, is it wrong to say that maybe it was supposed to disappear, you know, like, so I don't know that they could have really done anything all that differently unless we wanted it to last longer. Okay. Yeah. I tend to think that Buddhism in particular has a lot of trouble having a strong community, keeping people around Mm -hmm. getting, yeah, I guess that's it. Having a strong community, keeping people around it. But also, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, you know, you had said something about, you know, making sure that families, you know, were, were you know, participated and stuff mm-hmm. like that together. And a lot of times you're right. Like I've, I've been with three men and, and none of them really wanted to, you know, I've been married to three men and none of them really wanted to participate in Buddhism. So it just became my thing. You know, that was my thing to contribute to, to my life. And then ultimately the compassion would spill over into my marriage, but none of them were ever really interested in, in, in any of it, the oneness, the Buddhism, the unity, none of it. They all had their own things. So, yeah, I have seen, and, and again, I don't have an answer to this, but mm-hmm. I have seen that Western Buddhism uniquely mm-hmm. is a situation where a majority of people go and they leave their family behind and they go practice. So their spouse doesn't practice. Their Uh kids don't practice. And I mean, people, people will say, well, Buddhism's for adults or something, but like Eastern Buddhism, mm -hmm. they don't have that. And, and I've also heard people say like, well, it's a convert religion. So you're going to fall in love with someone that's also a Buddhist. But I've also seen that paganism doesn't have the situation. Buddhism does either. Those people go and practice together. Right. So I don't know why that is, and I don't. I don't have a solution to that. I don't right. really think it's a problem necessarily, but it, it's it's striking. You will right. not see a Christian minister who leads a community and his spouse is not part of the community. You will not agree. see that. Yeah, agree. So, well, I think it's an erroneous statement to even think that children do not practice Buddhism when um, when we are in in India in in Dharamsala where His Holiness is. Children are indoctrinated in in the the uh, as a monk at as early as eight or six, sometimes even, you know, and sometimes even younger than that. So I, um, what his holiness, the Dalai Lama was what, four or five when they came around to determine. Um, so it's, it's funny that that Western Buddhism would say, Oh, it's not for children. Right. When in Tibet, they were four or five, six years old when they're, when they're put in the monastery, you know, and it's considered a, uh, a, an honor for the family to, you know, to have a child go in. And many of the monks that I have, have met when they come with the Drepon Gomong monastery, you know, when they do the, the, um, the travels, cause you know, I volunteered for that, you know, most years, 
um, they started very, very early age. So to have, you know, clearly that, that person, you know, hasn't, hasn't studied at least Tibetan Buddhism, you know, because mm-hmm. children are completely involved, but you're right. Um, it is very rare to have any other faith, even like Sikhs, Muslim, you know, the whole family is involved, but, but Western Buddhism, there's not a lot of family involvement and there's not, um, there's not a lot of, uh, of children involved all that much either. And, and I, I'm not sure how I feel about the word convert religion. <laughs> just what I have to be converted. Okay, well. <laughs> but I, I've heard people say that and I'm like, I don't know. I don't see that, but okay. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously we didn't convert to Buddhism, but right. that's just the, I think that's but the word that gets used because, yeah. because we were not raised in a Buddhist culture, just as we were not right. raised in a Hindu culture. So right. we call it converting, but no, no, it's not yeah. the same as we really think of converted. <laughs> exactly. But, but I don't know what other word to use. For me, so. it was just a path. It was just another path. I went because my mother, um, with all of her faults and I, and I love my mother very much. She, she transitioned uh, about five, five or six years ago. But um, the first thing that she taught me at a very early age was seek first to understand and then to be understood. And those were some of her, you know, like her quotes from, from someone else. And it was always understand every religion before you judge anybody else's path. And so from a very early age, I have gone to multiple churches just to understand what their belief system was. So I could understand the person's heart better. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. What other, do you have any other projects going on right now? Um, I am good. Well, I, two things. So one, I am um, getting ready to go into death doula training, um, which we had talked a little bit about. Um, and it's one of those things also that, that I think I was always raised with. I was never afraid of, of the dying or the dead. Like it, it just, um, to me, it very much is a part of life. And we lost Baba Ram Das uh, here a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and that loss hit me especially hard. Um, and, and I loved where he had quoted, I think he had quoted someone else. And he said, you know, death is really just taking off a shoe that's too tight, you know? Um, and I always kind of always knew that, like, like the one certain of this, of this life is that it doesn't last forever. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're all going to die at Get some point. Get used to it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so you may as well um, embrace death, you know, and, and there's, there's truly nothing to fear if you don't believe in sin and hell and damnation and all that kind of stuff. There's truly nothing to fear. Um, and so from a very early age, I have always sat with the death, the, the dying and, um, and held their hand and, and, you know, played music for them or sang to them or read to them. And, and it's never been a fear thing to me. And so, um, I am actually going to be officially trained by a hospice group to be a death doula. And um, because I usually get off work about one 30 in the morning, I'm going to be like that midnight, you know, that, that overnight person, the one who goes in and sits and they just do two hour shifts when they have somebody who's on hospice. Um, so we'll go and we'll sit for two hours and hold space with the person. And, uh, and that's something I, I love. I love the phrase hold space. Um, I learned from India um, so when people would go and practice under Amma Bhagavan and people would have these emotional releases from something that they were doing, the people in India leave them alone. So you could be writhing in the middle of the floor, screaming and crying, and everybody's just going to walk around you. 
because, and they're holding space for you. Like they're not, they're not making fun of you and they're not staring at you. But the minute you get touched, you are pulled out of that, that release. And you need to stay in that release place. You need to stay in that place where you can completely release it. So what they refer to as, you know, like going through your emotional release and, and as soon as you reach or achieve bliss, then it's all done. And so I watched many, many times through the oneness stuff that I've done, people laying on the floor, crying, screaming, tears just flowing. It's not everywhere. And then all of a sudden they just start laughing because it's all purged out of them. And, um, and so I learned that that's how you hold space. And then when I became a Reiki master, I learned more about holding space and it's sending them unconditional love, non-judgment, not judging anything that's going on with them and just letting them have their time, whether, you know, whatever it looks like, not in, not engaging with them, just letting them have their time. And, um, and so I've really learned to hone that. And so being able to sit with the dying and giving them that space to go through whatever it is that, that is their path to do, but doing it in a non-judging, non-judgmental, unconditionally loving environment is, is the most sacred thing that we can offer someone who's taking off their too tight a shoe. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask questions about that death work, but first I want to say <laughs> I have, I have epilepsy, although I haven't had an episode in a long time. Uh-huh. And it just, what you're saying makes me think like if I was in a public place and I had a seizure, uh-huh. it would probably not be helpful if people were panicking and freaking out. Exactly. So um, that really speaks to me in that way because yeah. it's just a thing that it's going to happen and then it's going to end and yeah. you don't really have to do anything. Right. So, and that's what I always loved about like, the, the oneness stuff is we don't have to do anything when they are having their release. And I remember one, one friend in particular, Patrick, who got really triggered by like a movie that they were watching in India. And he was always called fat and he had all these, you know, these body image issues and stuff. And they were watching some movie about a kid who had been made fun of because he was fat. And he just laid and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And finally, when the sobbing ended, he just started to laugh and I have experienced that myself in, in some of the emotional releases and oneness events. And when he went and he like went to clean himself up, you know, he's got like snot in his hair and, you know, and all that stuff. And he just starts laughing hysterically at the image back to him. And all of his body image issues had just been shed because nobody messed with him. And he was able to process it all out of his cells. He was with cellular memory of that. He was able to process it all out of his heart just everything. And he came back so much stronger, so much more empowered. And if we just grant people that we, and and the real, one reason we don't is because as a, as a society, we are uncomfortable with people suffering. We are uncomfortable with tears. <laughs> we are uncomfortable with people crying with people, you know, screaming out. We are uncomfortable with that. We really are a society that just wants pleasure, which is why we have so much sugar in our society. It's why we have coffee on every corner because we really just don't want to see any suffering and we don't want to engage in any suffering. And it's one of the things I love about India is they embrace their suffering as much as they do their pleasure. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I learned, I've gotten into cooking recently and I've learned that we put an embarrassing amount of sugar and salt on our food oh and it's, both of those things are we're doing too much and it's not good for our palate. Uh-huh. So we can't really appreciate food anymore because exactly. of what we're doing to ourselves. Yeah. But um, anyway, so I had my friend Sergio on the podcast mm-hmm. and he is a Buddhist chaplain. 
Yes. And I had he had to tell me, explain to me at length the difference between a chaplain and hospice. Yeah. So um, what does a death doula do? Okay, why does it have its own name? Why, can, why isn't it just hospice volunteer? Um, because some hospice volunteers um, don't actually just sit with the actively dying. Um, some hospice volunteers go in and they like the clean a house okay. or they will sit. Like I was a hospice volunteer and I just sat with, with the people who um, maybe they had the diagnosis, but they weren't in the active dying state. Death doulas actually sit with those who are in the active state of dying. Okay. Um, and cause some hospice volunteers just want to help those that are on hospice, but are still fun- fully functional. So like when I was a hospice volunteer out of, out of Overland park, I would go and I'd paint a lady's fingernails every other week, you know, and I spent an hour with her every other week and just painted her nails and talked to her for a little bit. Um, I had another one that was, you know, she, um, was in a, a wheelchair and we would sit and watch, um, the cooking shows on um, public television. You know, she loved those cooking. I love those cooking shows. I learned a lot about how to fix and roasts doing that. Um, but death doulas specifically are with the, those who are in the active stages of dying. Okay. So no more, no cooking shows just, just yeah. for the very end. Yeah. It's the very end. So we would have, you know, and, and you're also with the families, like you're also um, holding space for the families as they are letting go as they are trying to process the grief. And even though I I have this very comfortable relationship with death, I still grieve. I, I literally lost two friends within like 12 hours of each other this weekend. Uh, I had one who had been fighting uh, multiple sclerosis since the nineties. And she um, finally succumbed to MS on Friday night. Mm -hmm. And then Lonnie died Saturday morning. And um, so, you know, I, I still grieved. I still, um, I will miss their physical bodies, but at the same time, what's the one, the one sure thing we have in this life? I mean, we don't even really have to pay our taxes. We can do jail time, but we absolutely will, will not, we're not getting out alive. Nobody's getting out of here alive. So it's time to make peace with that. Okay. And this, um, this is not volunteering. This is a career. You're well, this is, a, this is a volunteer for. work. It is. And okay. yeah, but I'm, I have a feeling like I'm not, I don't know that I'm actually ever going to ever have a church. I have a feeling that somewhere with my ministry, it's going to have something to do with working with society to help them understand the plight of, of inmates as well as dying, you know, and probably a little bit homeless in there. Cause we did a lot of work with the homeless and, you know, at the remay. And I believe that there's, there's a, a level of compassion there that's, that's still missing in our society. And it's interesting because um, I once said to somebody and, 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 and I feel like it was really taken out of context um, because I said to her, I said, yeah, I'm just trying to follow Jesus's shoes and do, do what's the right thing to do and, and, and to work with those in society that nobody else really wants to work with, which is the homeless, the dying and, and the imprisoned. Right. And, um, and she took that way out of context and was like, they're so egoic. And, and I don't mean it to be egoic. Mm-hmm. I absolutely mean it to be, if I am going to call myself a Christian and or a Buddhist and or a, a anything, then I have to have compassion for all sentient beings, especially those ones that everybody just wants to sweep under the carpet. And those are the three that we want to, nobody wants to be uncomfortable with somebody who's dying. A lot of people do not want to give second chances to guys who have done, or women who have done time on the inside. And what do we do when we see a homeless person begging on the street? We turn the other way and pretend like we don't see them. 
And those are the three that Jesus, well, aside from prostitutes, <laughs> you know, those are the three that Jesus, you know, really, really kind of encouraged you to work with. So. Oh yeah, that's really good. I really like that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to teach med what I call meditation for everyone because mm -hmm. I'm trying to reach people that don't want to quit drinking yeah. or people that like to swear all the time or, or whatever people yeah. that maybe, or, yeah. and especially like people that really don't want to go into temples. So, so yeah. not you, yeah. but people that really <laughs> don't want to go into temples right. because they have whatever issues they have. Oh, and yeah. I'm, I'm trying to reach them because I think those kinds of people are not getting reached because yeah. Uh, I mean, because their dogma is still barking at them. I mean, oh, I, I think about that too. I think about, well, who's not being served right now. And yeah. that's, that's why I keep everything I do free as well. Because Absolutely. again, I think who's not being served, served right now, I'm going to make it free and I'm going to do as much as I can not to shame people who don't donate. Cause I think that's, that is what mm -hmm. some religious centers have a tough time doing is not shaming people yeah. when they don't donate. Just the, the problem is, of course, things have to be paid for. Exactly. So um, I found a really cheap space to lead meditation and I do, I ask for donations and I lose mm -hmm. money every week, but right, right, I, right. I wish I had a free space so I didn't have to ask for donations at all, but I saw, yeah, I kind of saw that. It is I, what it is. I, I think something will come up. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. I yeah. do. I love the space. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. So is there anything that we have not talked about that you want to talk about? Whew. I don't know. The time always goes fast. It has almost <laughs> been an hour. Has it really? Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, there is one thing and I don't know how, how, uh, how you feel about this. So the thing that I mentioned earlier that, that we had not discussed is outside of here, um, outside of, well, it's all part of my spiritual journey is, um, you know, I, I, part of stepping into my power is teaching people how to embrace their, their spiritual gifts. They, some people call them psychic gifts, you know, but embracing their spiritual gifts. We all have them. Every single person is born with, with the same spiritual gifts as everyone else. Some are stronger. So like, um, and it's, it's a lot like, um, let's use singing. For example, I can hardly carry a tune on a bucket. However, I can practice and I can get it, you know, somewhat strong. Um, but we're all, and then, my niece can sing beautifully. My mother was trained for the opera. Um, so we all have those gifts. We can all kind of do it. And with practice and, and honing the skills, we can sometimes get up there. We may not all be, you know, Celine Dion or, or whatever. But um, so one of the things that I'm doing is I'm helping people step into their powers. Um, but it's all through helping like the, the developing their psychic gifts, if you will, is really the secondary aspect, it is teaching them how to step in their power and co-create and align with that, that spirit of source, as opposed to that, the manifestation game is what I call it. When you scroll through Facebook, how many ads do you see for manifest in seven days, blah, 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 blah. Aligning with source is not about magic tricks. It's not about, you know, manifesting. It's about aligning and making that a permanent part of your every single day practice. And I, and I get so frustrated with, with one of the things I love about with, about Buddhism is that it's all about learn it and then apply it every single day. And what I don't love is when people say, learn this and then create this big magic trick or learn this, but don't apply it every day. So um, I always refer to them like, like armchair, if you will, armchair Christians, mm -hmm. the ones who 
go and, and beg for forgiveness on Sunday. And then Monday through Saturday, don't apply a single <laughs> thing that they learned on Sunday. Yeah. And, and then they have to go and ask for forgiveness on Sunday. And I'm like, what are you doing? That just seems like <laughs> chaos to me, you know, apply it. And so what I am really excited about is I'm, I am for the next year, I'm doing a, um, a, it's called path. Um, at, oh, for psychic awareness. Oh my God. I forgot the name of it. Cause I didn't create it. Somebody else did. But anyway, uh, psychic awareness training for harmony. That's what it is. And, um, and it's really about creating harmony within your life by embracing the skills that you naturally have, because we are all created in the image and likeness of energy. So we all have the same abilities and skills. It's just whatever we want to work with and however we want to hone it. So, um, so I do that, but it's really more about stepping into their power and, and leading a truly authentic life being truly who they are and not shutting down something because this belief system says it's not right. Or that belief system says it's not right. Or granny. So somebody says, you know, Oh, that's the devil or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. So there's that. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, I will have you send me a link to that and I'll put it in the show notes. So people okay. can, so people yeah. can learn about that and anything else. Um, yeah. I, I tend to say that spirituality in jet, especially mm -hmm. Buddhism because that's where I'm at. But mm -hmm. spirituality in general really is about just learning to be more authentic. It is. And it's not about, really, it's not about learning to be good or learning mm -hmm. to be wise or anything else. It's mm -hmm. about just learning to be more authentic and to just step away from the less authentic and exactly. less real. And, and let's just, let's just say, because I love the, the fact that you used real. When somebody abuses somebody and they're like, I'm just keeping it real, yo. That's not authentic. That's not real. Abuse is not real. Um, and so let's, let's make that very, that major distinction there. You don't get to get in somebody's face and yell at them and say, I'm just being authentic. I'm just being real, yo. It, it really, you have to shed all of that and truly come into a place of compassion and, and, and if it's okay, I'm going to share the very first, the very first article I wrote for Tattooed Buddha when you, and I think you read it and you're like, oh my God, I know this person. So, um, you know, I wrote for um, Tattooed Buddha and you may remember this, but the very first article I wrote for them was um, when I had to face down the killer of, of, uh, of my only child's father in, in, on the streets of the prison. So, um, Dave and I had been together in my twenties. Um, and as, as damaged and wounded as he was, he was still a great love of my life. And, um, for, for the time, um, and I ended up losing the baby and we lost each other through it all. And over time we had, you know, kind of stayed in contact and we lost contact. And then, um, and then I had to get in contact with them again because there were some legal issues that I was dealing with. And, um, and so we just maintained kind of a, a distant friendship for the last few years of his life. And he was, God love him. He was a wounded, wounded man. Um, he had a very good soul. And I think every woman, and there were hundreds who, <laughs> who knew him, um, cause I know <laughs> I've met a lot of them, um, saw his, his, the beauty of his soul, the, the gentleness of his soul, but he came into this world to be a warrior. He was a soldier. He was a police officer. He had had to take lives and that all damaged him significantly. And there's, I, I've all firmly believed that, um, at some point the spirit is just not going to be able to function, um, 
well without some kind of coping mechanism once you've taken a life and once you've seen that life go out of their eyes and and we just don't we don't deal with it well with that as human beings that's not what we're here to do is to kill other other things and um so anyway dave was killed in uh july of 2016 he was shot um while on patrol um, and as a captain, he should have never been in a car, but Dave was never one to sit behind a desk. And, um, and, you know, and when I found out about it, um, I had a, a complete nervous breakdown. He was like death number nine in three years for me. And so, um, it just set me over the edge and it, it could have been anybody in my family. It just happened to have been Dave, um, at that time. And so anyway, um, a couple of years later, I get hired at the prison and then I get noticed, like somebody sent it to me and they said, Oh, look, the guy who, who actually pulled the trigger has just accepted a plea deal. Looks like he's going to be in the Kansas prisons. And so I had the opportunity to write a letter to the prison that I was working at. And I said, Hey, I really don't want this guy here. I have history with him and it's going to be really hard to face him down on the streets of the prison. Um, he doesn't know who I am, but I know who he is. And he took, he took Dave's life. And I just don't know that, that I can well up that much compassion for somebody, you know, something that, that, is still very, very hard for me to even speak about at this time. And um, so that got heard by no one. Um, so I go in one day and it was just this very strange thing. I was already in kind of a bad mood. Um, I Just a series of things before I even got there. And it's like even before, you know, 6.50 in the morning and, and it was just a series of things. And so I'm trying to figure out how I'm not going to bleed my, my, crappy morning all over my inmates, you know, cause I don't, I don't want them to suffer as a result of what I'm going through. And I have to face this kid. This kid walks out of the cell house. He got transferred to my prison with, because nobody paid attention to my letter, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he walks out of the cell house and I meet him. And in that moment, in that moment, and it was really like a split second, but all this stuff is going through my head. And the first thing that went through my head is I wonder if a staff member has ever attacked an inmate, you know, like, <laughs> wonder what they would do to me if I, if I jumped on him and started, you know, punching him in the head, like what would they do? And like the captain's office is right there. So there's this window where they're looking out, you know? And, um, and I was like, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what would happen. And then I, I was like, but that's not you and Dara, this isn't who you are. And, and so I just dropped into my heart and then I looked at this kid and I really saw him and I saw him as somebody who probably didn't have a very stable home life and somebody who may have been um, like most gang members may have been um, kind of forced into the life, you know, like you, you choose us or you choose to, to be beaten up every single day um, because that happens. And that's, that's a real thing. Or perhaps he had an older brother who said, Hey man, come on. It's like a brotherhood. And then he like, really, it's like selling your soul to mm -hmm. the devil. And, and, um, and in that moment, as I truly got into my authentic self, it was, I am so sorry that you had that life. And I'm so sorry that you thought that the only choice you had was to take somebody's life. And I have no idea what karma you had with Dave in that. And I'm going to let that rest between the two of you. But as for me, I choose peace. And so I forgive you. And it all happened like in such a split second of a moment. And I smiled at him. And he went on to get his, like, it was his first day at the prison. So he had to go get all of his, his, um, property. And, um, what was really weird about it is there's nobody on the street when all that was happening. I'm like, I work in a prison with 2000 inmates and 500 mm -hmm. staff and nobody's there except me and the prison cats and this kid. 
And, um, and then when I came out, everybody was there. And so that's, that's authenticity. When you shed the ego and you go into what sources and sources, love sources, compassion sources, forgiveness, it's not chaos. And so you know, I can say I'm keeping it real, yo, as I'm beating the hell out of him on the street. Sorry, I just cursed. Um, or I can really keep it authentic and say, I have no idea what history you have with Dave, but I forgive you. Because I know that Dave is, this was part of your path or it would have never happened. And I know that he's okay. And I know that you're okay, wherever you are. And then two months later, um, the officer walks up to me and he's like, hey, I just got your letter about, you know, <laughs> this guy. And I'm like, you know what? Forget about it. I've already faced him on the street 20 times now. It's good. <laughs> the kid's fine. I'm fine. We're done. So yeah. So that was, and the kid had no idea who I was and to this day still has he no still idea. Does yeah. Okay. He does not know that in that moment though, I chose peace. I chose to be authentically who I am, which is love and peace and compassion and forgiveness. So yeah. That is really powerful. Thank you. So um, we're going to end there. Yeah. So thank you for coming to do the podcast. It's been great. Thank you. thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.